Last year, there was a stirring in the news when the founder and CEO of Chobani, that yogurt company, shared the wealth of his company with his employees. Hamdi Ulukaya is a Turkish immigrant, and he's committed 10% of the entire value of the company to the employees of the company. He, he is committed to share with his employees. Now, in a broader corporate culture that typically sees a massive disparity between CEOs and employees, it's, it's a startling and refreshing thing to see a founder of a company share with the employees of the company. All of this, all of this hubbub, all of this movement has taken place in the corporate world. There, there have been waves that have been made and people are starting to take notice, all because there was a founder who shared with his people. And in our text for today, we see an even more startling and refreshing news story, the good news story that Jesus, as the founder of our salvation, has shared with us in our situation so that we could share with him in his situation. This is what we need to unpack this morning. If you recall last week or if you weren't here with us by way of review, this is a sermon that was sent to a struggling Christian community in an urban center. The urban Christians who are facing very difficult circumstances that are trying their faith. They're tempted to give up. They're tempted to go back, to shrink in fear. And the message of the book of Hebrews is addressed to this group of Christians with whom we can identify so well. And the whole message, the whole gist of the letter is meant to lead them to endurance by way of lifting up the goodness of who Jesus is for them and how much better he is than anything else they could turn to for ref refuge in their, in their scary circumstances. The simple fact of the gospel is that the founder of our salvation decided to share. And so this morning, we're going to look at two points. We're going to see how Jesus shares our suffering, and we're going to see how it is that we come to share his salvation. So let's look at our first point. Jesus shares our suffering. I think that one of the great gifts of the book of Hebrews is that this sermon actually gives us a theology of suffering. It gives us a theology of suffering. This is a particular weakness of American Christianity, black church accepted. You see, Christians all around the globe and Christians through the history of the church, they have, they have known suffering and they have come to embrace a stronger theology of suffering. They have learned to endure in suffering. But in the American church, it's one of the afflictions that our social successes and accomplishments has given us. It's given us a wound. We don't know how to suffer. We don't know how to endure in difficult times. We tend to wither when the heat is turned up on us. The Christian church, historically and globally, has known how to endure. You can define endurance as knowing how to suffer for the right things. That's endurance. Knowing how to suffer for the right things. And so, 
We have a great gift to lay hold of in this book. Because here's the deal. If you do not have a theology of suffering, you will find joy and contentment elusive. You'll never really have it. If you don't have a theology of suffering, you will feel it necessary to grasp for power. If you don't have a theology of suffering, you will feel it necessary to grasp and reach for control of your circumstances. But when you do have a theology of suffering, you can endure, you can persevere. But let's follow the text. Look at the text. Verse 5 reveals a pivot in the text. In the argument up to this point, we have been covering the greatness, the glory, the, the, the magnitude and exaltation of who Jesus is. Chapter 1 is all about how high Jesus is, how great and glorious he is. You see, these people needed to hear the message of a great and glorious Savior in Jesus. But in chapter 2, verse 5, the preacher pivots and he says, not only is he high and great and glorious, he's also the Savior who is low and humble and ready to save, who can identify, who lives in solidarity with his people. And you need both. You see, many of the gods in the pantheons of that time, they were known for being great. They were hailed as being powerful, and they sat up on high, and the whole gist of their religious devotion was about trying to, to ascend to the gods. And if they were in trouble, every once in a while, the gods may look down on them, may cast a glance upon them, but those gods never really came down. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to show them is that Jesus is better because he's not only high and exalted and transcendent above the creation, but he's the God who entered into the creation in order to heal it. He's the God who can sympathize with their situation. He's the God who can feel their pain. There is no tear that they cry. There is no suffering that they endure. There is no loss that they feel. There is no ostracism that they face that their Savior has not faced before them, showing them that it is, it is possible to endure and also showing them that he's going to eradicate all those things ultimately. There is a pivot here that takes place. If you look at verses 6 through 8, you will see that this sermon turns to a psalm. And it is by way of this psalm that we are taught the nature of God's solidarity with his people in Jesus. Psalm 8 is, is a pretty powerful psalm because what we see is King David, imagine him, the scene. One day, he's, he's out in the evening. It's dark out. There's no light pollution. He's looking up at the sky. He sees the stars shining brightly, the constellations in the sky. And as he's reflecting on the greatness and the glory of God in the creation, all of a sudden, this thought begins to dawn upon him, and poetry begins to spring into his heart. And he says, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
Who has set thy glory in the heavens? The sun, the moon, the stars which you have ordained. When I consider the work of your hands in the creation and everything that you have done, the vastness of this world, when I think on all of these things, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. He's astonished at the fact that God cares. He looks at the creation and he is immediately drawn into the stupefying thought that God cares for us. Now here's a question. Why does the writer of Hebrews raise this? Why does he bring this up? Because, because something different has happened for these folks. David looks up into the heavens at the creation and he is stunned at the dignity, the value, the worth of humanity, their purpose, God's concern, and his investiture in humanity with so much goodness and value and importance. But what were the people at the time of the writing of Hebrews, what were they doing? Here's what they were doing. <laughs> they, were, they were, in a sense, rewriting the sentiment of this psalm. The audience has taken a different perspective than David. They, they, were, they were doing this. They said, when they looked at their trouble, the work of their opponents, the persecution and attacks that enemies had set in place, the thought hit them. Is God even mindful of us? Does God even care about us? They felt hollow and unstable. They felt so vulnerable, like their lives were about to come crashing down. It was a terrible feeling that they were experiencing. They were having a hard time believing that it was possible to have life struggles and God's care at the same time. Let me say that again. They were, they, were, they were caught up in the belief that it was impossible to have life struggles and God's care at the same time. They were making it an either or. Either my life is going really well, and that means God cares, or I'm going through hard times, and that means God doesn't care. But what the writer here is showing them is that it is possible, yes, it is always the case that we have troubles and afflictions, but simultaneously we have God's care. We have God's care, and he, he's about to unravel this for them. He takes them back to Psalm 8, but what he's going to do is he's going to develop Psalm 8 in a particular way. Look at this text. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This is what the psalmist says. But can you imagine these people? You have crowned him with glory and honor, but they're wrestling through dishonor and fear and shame. How can this be true? You've put everything in subjection to him. How can that be? We feel like we're in subjection to everything in this world. The powers that be are weighing us down. We're being crushed. This message seems, Psalm 8 seems crazy. But look at what, look at what the preacher does. He says, no, this psalm is still true. 
But you have to read this psalm through the glory of Jesus. You have to read this psalm as being fulfilled, as, com as coming to reality in Jesus. He acknowledges the tension. He says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. He acknowledges the tension, and then he shows them the way to press through the tension. But we see him. And this is what changes everything, the solidarity of Jesus. Jesus shares our suffering. Psalm 8 is realized in the humanity of Jesus. And in this truth, we are able to see that God is indeed mindful of us. He is literally mindful of us. His mind is filled with good thoughts toward us. His mind is filled with gracious thoughts toward us. His mind is filled with loving intentions for us. It is not possible for God to have one thought that is contrary to your well-being if you are his child. That is not a possibility. It is not, it's not possible for us to be off of God's mind. There's not one thought in his mind that's adverse to our well-being. In Jesus, we see God's care. That was the very point of tension for them. I'm going through. How is it that God can claim to care? In Jesus, he shows his care. In Jesus, we see the intensity of God's care. We see the constancy of God's care. We see the tenderness of God's care and the sufficiency of God's care for us. Everything we had and lost in the fall has been recovered and returned to us in union with Jesus. Do you see what he's saying to them? Because he shared our suffering, we can share his salvation. This is the gist of this passage. This is the theme. Because he shared our suffering and came through it victoriously to be crowned, when we look at him in faith, we are looking at our future. If I could put it this way, Jesus is the crystal ball of every Christian. When you look into the person and work of Jesus, you see your future. You see what you shall become. You may live in the tension now, but you will be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be become, but we know this. When he returns, we shall be like him. And he has already begun the renovation process. He's already begun the process of rolling back the darkness in our hearts, rolling back the darkness in our community, giving us the grace to repent, to humble ourselves, to ask for forgiveness, to return forgiveness to others. He is doing a great work of salvation in the lives of his people. Do you see the switch that the author of Hebrews is, is showing us? Jesus was brought low for a little while and then raised up. And this is the future of all who trust and endure. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. And this is the future of all who trust and endure. Jesus partook of flesh and blood so that we can partake of the life-giving spirit of God. He was made like his brothers so that his brothers could be made like him and sisters. He was made like us 
so that we could be made like him. That is, that is the astonishing truth of the gospel. This is the exchange. Jesus shared our suffering so that we can share his salvation. And that brings us to our second point. We share his salvation. At the beginning of chapter 2, we, as we covered last week, there is a warning at the beginning of this chapter. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, what he's doing in the remainder of this passage is he is developing the nature of this great salvation. What is this great salvation? We have to understand that this great salvation is not limited to a purely future significance. Some critics today mischaracterize the Christian faith and misrepresent the Christian faith as a pie-in-the-sky, completely futurist faith. That is neither accurate nor a fair representation of what the Christian faith teaches. This is not what we see in Scripture, this, this kind of idea where the people of God are to be so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good, that they resign themselves in this present life. There are Christians who have misrepresented the faith in this way, but this is not what the Christian faith teaches. The Christian faith teaches a holistic salvation, a great salvation. The, the person and work of Christ has a totalizing effect. It's not just future. It's not just past. It's not just present. It's not just one corner of your life. It's not just some aspect of your human existence. It has a totalizing effect. The entirety of your life, the entirety of the lived human experience, the entirety of the historical uh, story of humanity, it has a totalizing effect. It matters in each one of those facets. It presses out into every mode of human experience and existence. This is why the author calls it such a great salvation. This is the salvation that we can share in because Jesus had solidarity with us, because Jesus shared in our suffering. It's a great salvation. This is a great salvation because a great God paid a great cost because of his great love for us. He fulfilled a great plan in his great wisdom, bridging a great gap to defeat the great enemy of his people. It is a great salvation. His grace is great. His mercies are great. His kindness and patience are great. It's a great salvation. It's not casual, it's not everyday, it's not humdrum, it's not nice addition to your life if you need a little pick-me-up. It is a great salvation. This is what we have been invited to share in. Jesus fulfilled a great plan through his great mercies to bring us into this great salvation. Verse 15, look at the ultimacy. This is where we see how truly great this salvation is. Verse 15, look at this. 
and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why did Jesus have solidarity with us? In what way do we see the solidarity of Jesus impacting our present and also our past and our future? This is it. When it comes down to it, so much of our, our living, whether we realize it or not, is directed toward trying to avoid and prolong, push off the day of our death, the great day of reckoning. That is the great leveler. Everyone can talk everything they want, but everyone knows if they get to have that deathbed experience that it is a sobering, fearful experience. It was for the people of the time. Death, terrifying. But why is this salvation so great? Because the most deadly opponent of the human race the most vicious adversary, the most savage experience that we have to face in this world, death has been defeated in Jesus' solidarity with us. Let me tell you something. Death is not a natural part of life. Don't let anyone ever tell you that. That's one of those things that people say at funerals when they don't have any kind of, of ability to ground a true understanding of the world and the way it is. Death is not natural. It is an intruder in God's good world. It's an intruder in God's creation. But Jesus took on human flesh in order to wrangle with that most vicious opponent and to evict him from the creation, to deal him the death blow. This is, this is where we see the death of death in the death of Christ, as one Puritan put it. This is the victory of God's people. And I want you to think with me, imagine with me. I was wrestling with this because I do very much care to lean against that pie-in-the-sky outlook that people have on the Christian faith. We see it in, in hymns that are sung, you know, about one day we'll go will fly away. One day we're going to leave this world. This world is not my home. In some sense, that is true. But in another sense, that's very wrong. We look to a new heaven and a new earth. But I was thinking about how it's not just a futurist salvation we've been invited into. It, is, it has present impact. And, and I was thinking about this. Um, this past week, our son Elijah had to go get tested for allergies. And my man found out that he was going to have to go to this. And he's been to one already, so he knew what he was in for. And I'm telling you, for a week out, he was like, he was stressing, you know? You know, my man is chill. He's laid back. He's reserved. But he would be having these pensive moments. I'm like, what's up, man? He'd be like, nothing. I'm like, you nervous? He's like, Yep. <laughs> and I could sympathize, right? We all know what it's like. I'm like that. I told him daddy's the same way. I don't like going to see Dr. Kyle, and I love him, but I don't want to get stuck with no needles. I'm, I love you, brother. I don't like getting jabbed with needles, all right? Whenever you have something out there, your destination, your telos, your trajectory affects the journey right now. 
And if the only thing you have to look forward to at the end is a Christless experience, well, then you're going to be plagued with fears and anxieties all the way to that final destination. But what we need to see in this text is this. There is a difference between riding in the rain to a funeral and riding in the rain to a wedding. There's a very different way that we drive through the rain, isn't it? We don't experience that rain in the same way. What we're seeing is that the future hope, the future restoration is meant to make us a very present and available people. That future hope is meant to make us the most engaged kind of people right now. You see, what's going to happen throughout this this sermon is we're going to see that these people were tempted to withdraw from their neighbors because they were afraid of them because they did not have a firm grip on, on, on how Jesus told their future and shaped their present. God's people are headed for the wedding. And the freedom of this message, this theology of suffering, reorients us to the world in which we live. Formerly, we had every reason to retreat from the world in order to avoid suffering and hardship. Now, we can lean into the world seeking its good because we know suffering and hardship can be redeemed. It can be used. It can be leveraged. God does not waste any suffering on his people. He gets the maximum amount of benefit out of the sufferings of his people, the maximum amount of redemptive impact when his people suffer with his glory in mind and endurance in their hearts. Jesus is exhibit A for that truth. Because Jesus has shared our suffering, we are to become a people that lovingly and redemptively shares the sufferings of others, the poor, the disenfranchised, immigrants, refugees, the vulnerable, Friends in this community who are suffering, those who are battling depression, those who are hurting because things that they're hoping for in life aren't coming true for them, we are to be the kind of people who has the heart to share the suffering of others, to bear them up in their infirmities because this is precisely what saved our lives. The way that Jesus did this for us, this is a part of our story, y'all. Lastly, I'll say this. I think this this solidarity of Jesus, sharing of our suffering and the way in which we now share in his salvation, I think this leads God's people to be more public and forthright about their distinctive Christian faith. I think it leads us to be more public and forthright about our faith. We don't need to fear those who frown upon our faith in Christ. These are the very people that that need us to stand firm and rooted, immovable about our commitment to the gospel. Shrinking in the face of those who disapprove of our faith is not a viable Christian option. If Jesus has taken the fear out of the scariest reality in all of human experience, death, then surely he can take the fear out of the lesser concerns that we have. The disapproval of others, ostracism, alienation. 
We don't have to be afraid about that. We don't have to be concerned about that. He shared our sufferings. We share his salvation and everything that comes along with it, all of its entailments. You and I have that right now. It's our possession. Of which part of the gospel should we be ashamed? Can you tell me that? I know. I know what it's like to be apprehensive about letting people know. Or when people inquired, dancing around it a little bit, trying to soft pedal it. You know, you know I believe in God. I'm spiritual. But let me ask you this. As a Christian, which part of the gospel should, should you be ashamed of? Is it, is it the part uh, that talks about the great love of God from eternity past and into the future? Is that, is that the part? Is it the great mercy of God toward those who don't deserve his love? Is, is it that part we should be ashamed of? Or, or is it the part where God bears up under our sufferings and carries our, our sicknesses and our woes, even though we don't deserve it? Is it that part we should be ashamed of? Should, should we be ashamed of, of the sacrificial care of God, where he's willing to put himself out so that we could be brought in? Is that the part we should be ashamed of? Should we be ashamed of the part where God executes justice for the oppressed? Is that the part we should be ashamed of? Should we be ashamed of the part where God actually makes those who do evil account for their evil deeds? Is that the part we should be ashamed of? Help me out. I can't find a single part of it that we should be ashamed about. Everything about God and the message that he is communicating to us in his story, it's all good news. Take courage, Christian, and endure. We have a great high priest who is able to help in our times of trouble. Take refuge in him and take his courage. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving him so willingly to us, for us, to help us, to do for us what no one else could do, to rescue us and, and to, to secure us, to give us forever security not temporary security. We thank you, Lord, that this is no cut-rate insurance that we have in your promise, that we are secure. We are yours forever. We belong to you. So help us to believe and to persevere, to endure. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.